Deuteronomy chapter 4. didn't quite get out of the fourth chapter together last time. We're at this point just sort of wrapping up this uh, first sermon of Moses. Again, the book of Deuteronomy is in essence, as we said, a series of sermons or final speeches or addresses that Moses delivers uh, to the next generation of the children of Israel who are about to now enter in under Joshua's leadership into the promised land. And so because of that, he delivers some preparatory uh, sermons speeches, addresses to just further equip them spiritually for what is on uh, the horizon for them that they be adequately prepared and again the theme as we've seen certainly in this first sermon and we see it throughout all of the sermons the same theme is the theme of obedience and Moses in this first sermon as we sort of come to around verse 32 where we left off last time has been reflecting back upon God's faithfulness and what the Lord has done thus far in the history of the children of Israel. And that's really the essence of how he's wrapping up this first message now. Chapter 4, verse 32, he then says, Therefore ask now concerning the days that are past. So again, the idea is reflect back on what God has done in the past, which I think is something good for all of us to do. This is, again, a younger generation, and I think it's good for the younger generation to be able to ask uh, of the generation ahead of them and to be able to say, hey, t tell me what God has done. Explain to me again the testimony of what the Lord has done in your life and in the generation before me. To be able to hear what God has already done is certainly one of the greatest things that gives us the encouragement to be able to believe that God will again work in our day and in our hour because he's a God, the Bible says, who changes not. Uh, so the same God that parted the Red Sea uh, keep in mind, ultimately, will be the exact same God that when they're looking at the Jordan River at flood stage rushing in front of them, it will be that same God that will give them word to walk forward into that water and to trust that when the priests would put their foot uh, into the Jordan, that the Jordan water river would part, in a sense, much like the Red Sea. Again, God repeating a, a similar work, a similar miracle, but doing it for a new generation in a new way, for a new purpose. With the Red Sea, it was God opening a door that had never been opened in order to get them out of something that they were stuck in and to bring them out of something that they had been in for a time. With the Jordan River, when God parts the Jordan, they cross through the Jordan River on dry ground and go up into the Canaan land. That's God parting, in a sense, uh, you know, and, and making an opening for them to enter into something. Uh, so, in essence, you have God somewhat doing the same miracle. One was doing a miracle to get people out of something. Another is an incredible miracle of God to bring people into something. And God did the same for one generation as the next and again we realize that the same miracle working God who did these things then is the same God that we serve today and Moses wanted this next generation to realize that to remember the spiritual heritage of their parents and their grandparents and what God had done for them in order to believe that this same God would do the same in their lives and I think we need to remember that as well that the same God that we serve today is that Red Sea parting 
manna providing, you know, water out of the rock supplying God that did the same thing for Israel as he does for you and I today as we need his help and assistance in our lives. So Moses says to them, ask now, concerning the days which are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. So he hearkens all the way back to creation. He says, ask, search it out, he says, from one end of heaven to the other, whether any great thing like this has ever happened or anything like it has been heard. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live, referring to the experience there at Mount Horeb on Sinai when God spoke out of the fiery cloud that was above Mount Horeb there. He says, verse 34, or did God ever try and go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation? Again, going into Egypt and calling out a people, the Hebrew people, which would become the nation of Israel. He says, has God ever done something this marvelous and unique as he did with his sovereign choice, choosing the people of Israel as his chosen nation, his select people, by trials and signs, verse 34, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God, he says, did for you in Egypt, before your eyes to you he says it was shown that you might know that the lord himself is god for there is none other besides him so again the idea here moses is trying to awaken their understanding or in some ways maybe just uh, you know re-trigger in their mind this awareness that somehow could have been forgotten what a privileged people they were that God had never worked and done in the marvelous ways that he did this incredible purpose and plan of selecting a nation that was stuck in another nation and pulling them out and making them a chosen blessed people and delivering them with signs and wonders and a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And, and Moses is trying to get them to realize, do you realize how blessed you are? Do you realize how privileged you are that God intervened and got you out of the place where you were? He came and sought you in Egypt and showed his power and his outstretched arm to awaken you to the revelation of who he was as the one true living God, the great I am, and worked so powerfully to get you out of what you were stuck in and bondage. And boy, as we think of that and what God did for Israel, as he said many times, that's a total picture of exactly what God has done for us. And that we, like them, would never lose sense of the awe and the incredible privileged people that we are, that where we were in our, in a sense, bondage in Egypt, and as we at one time were a part of the world, listen, you know, I, whether you came to Christ when you were young, which, praise the Lord, if you did, quite honestly, that's the best testimony there is. Or whether you didn't come to Jesus till you were 18 or 28 or 38, the reality is, is there was a time when you were in the world system. And you were in Egypt. And whether you realize it or not, you were serving the cruel taskmaster of the spiritual Pharaoh who was putting the whip on and had you living in bondage. And, and, and you weren't seeking God. I wasn't looking for God. But God came looking for us. And he sovereignly selected and said, I want them to experience my deliverance. And he came and he, he, he answered our cries as we were crying out for help, realizing the misery we were in and not even knowing how to get out of it. And God came. 
and he and he rescued us and delivered us out of that in so many ways he's outstretched arm he reached in and he did for us such great wonders to reveal himself to us that we might know him he says verse 35 to you it was shown God showed himself to us that you might know, look, that the Lord himself is God and there is none that are besides him. And boy, isn't that the, the reality for all of us? In essence, that's what God did. God showed himself to us and God revealed himself and we came to realize, wow, God is real. Lord, you're real. And, and, and in, his, in his own unique way, in your own experience, in your own you know, redemption experience, God showed himself to you. And you realize that he was the one true and living God and he awakened you to that reality spiritually, showed you that he was the Lord and that there's none other besides him. And again, again, these are just great verses, again, especially for some of the pseudo-Christian cults who try and say that you, know, that, that you can become a God and that there are many gods. Well, look, the Bible just refutes. There is none other besides him. There's one God. So when people say there are many gods and if you do really well and follow our little pseudo-Christian cult, they won't call it a pseudo-Christian cult. I'm calling it that for you. And you can become a god. Well, that doesn't really work for me because the Bible says there's one god and there is no other. There is no other god. It, it, it's unbiblical, the, the concept. That's why it's a cult. It's a pseudo-Christian cult naming the name of Christ, but it's not the same Jesus of the Bible. He says, verse 36, out of heaven, he let you hear his voice, Moses says, that he might notice, instruct you on earth. And he showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. That incredible experience as they literally heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire and the glory cloud there at Horeb, hearing his voice, being instructed how they might live for him and know what it means to serve him. You heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And why? Verse 37. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them and brought you out of Egypt. Notice with his presence and his mighty power. Again, the, the basis, the root for all that God did among them because he loved them. There's well, nothing special about them. Again, we have to remember when, yes, the Bible upholds that the children of Israel, the Jews, are God's chosen people. They are his special chosen people. That will never change. But there's nothing, please understand, technically special about the Jews. What makes them special is there's a very special God who has a very special love for them, who out of his love for them said... Of all the peoples on the earth, these people will be my chosen people. And this is who I will work my plan of redemption through, who I fulfill my prophecies through, who the Messiah will come through. There's nothing uniquely special about them. What's special is God. And this is what Moses recognized here. He says, the reason that God did this is because he loved you. It was the love of God. It was the incredible love that God had for them that motivated him to choose their descendants and to bring them out of Egypt. I love what it says, verse 37, with his presence and his mighty power. It was the presence of God and it was the power of God. And you know, when you have the presence of God and the power of God, incredible things are going to happen in the spiritual dimension. Driving out, verse 38, from before you nations, notice, look, greater and mightier than you. So they were extremely outmatched. But because of the presence of God, 
and the power of God, it didn't matter who came against them. God gave them victory to bring you in, verse 38, to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Notice again, as we read earlier, verse 39, take note, therefore know this day, Moses says, and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath and there is no other one God. You know, it's often been said before, the first step in theology, the first truth of theology to learn very simply is this. There's one God and you're not him. There's a creator and everything else is created. That's what makes God holy set apart exclusive because God is creator and everything else that exists in existence in the human dimension, the spiritual dimension, the physical realm, the spirit, everything else is created. God is creator. There's one God and so important. I mean, that, that just really just, I mean, that just sets the basis for everything else in theology. You don't come then to God with any demands. You come simply ready to take orders. There's one God, your creator, you're, you're the authority over all. Therefore, he says, know it this day. Consider it in your heart, Moses tells this younger generation. It's good to know this in your youth. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 you know, says, to, to remember now your creator in the days of your youth. There's something very good about that. At a very young age, at the youngest age possible, you know, would not many of us in this room say that you know, if there was something that we might change about our life is that if we would have come to that humble place of awareness a little bit younger in our life, to know in our heart that God is our creator, that we were created, that we have accountability to God, that we have a God that has a plan and a purpose for our life and that he has authority over our life, it would have radically changed probably a lot of the ways we lived and the decisions that we made. And here Moses is telling this younger generation to, to establish this spiritual principle, to cling to it, to consider it, to let it sink deep into their heart that he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath and there is no other. You shall, as a result of that, verse 40, therefore, keep his statutes, Moses says, and his commandments. Again, notice the theme of constant obedience reiterated. Because of who he is, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today. Why? That it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you, for all time so again does god just want us to be obedient to his commands because he wants to incarcerate our life with all of his rules and and he just got an authority trip and so he just wants to be in charge and, and he's he's egotistical and he just loves to domineer and rule over people and he just and, and many people that's their perspective toward god Many unbelievers and people who aren't yet following the Lord and don't know him in a personal, genuine way. Well, I, don't, I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want, there's all these rules and regulations. Look, the Bible says the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Quite honestly, it's the most liberating experience that there is because you come to know the freedom and the liberty there is in the grace of God and the love of God to be able to be governed by a law of love. And this is what Moses is pointing out here as he's talking about, and keep in mind, this is even the Old Testament laws that he's talking to the nation of Israel about, the covenant of the Old Testament. He says, obey what God has commanded you. He says very simply, verse 
40, that it may go well with you. God wants it to go. He wants you to have a good life, he's saying. He's a loving father. He wants life to go well for you and for your children after you. Again, when a person lives their life according to the commands of Scripture and the boundaries of the Word of God, they do well. They have a better life and they have a better family life and it blesses their children and their grandchildren and the next generation after because it establishes a pattern of living the way that God intended life to be lived with blessing and where we might have stability. He says that you'll prolong your days in the land. That is that they would have stability, that they wouldn't have to be kicked out of the land as they ultimately were because they were just tenants there. And when they disobeyed God like every other nation before them, the Canaanites and others, God even drove the children of Israel out for a time because the land was his. So again, God wants us to obey for our benefit that we might experience by his love the good plans and purposes that come with following his ways of living. Verse 41, it says, Then Moses set apart three cities on this side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun. Again, the sun rises in the east, so he's referring to the eastern side of the Jordan there where they currently are. They haven't yet crossed over. That the manslayer might flee there who kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hatred of him in the past and he might fleeing to know one of these cities he might live there Bezier in the wilderness on the plateau of the Reubenites Ramoth was the city in Gilead for the Gadites and Golan in Bashan for the Manassehites so again we talked before we'll say much on this in regards to these cities of refuge and we'll talk more about them these are basically sanctuary cities we saw these earlier given by instruction through uh, Moses as God told them to set aside six cities that would basically be sanctuary type cities where if you unintentionally caused the death of someone, it wasn't murder, but an unintentional, you could, before the avenger of blood came after you to settle justice for his family in the death of a loved one, you could flee to one of these cities of refuge where there you could be kept in, in sanctuary, in a sense, in safekeeping until all the facts could come in and you could be given a fair trial. And that you could have the evidence presented and that there would be a just and an equitable process to sort out the details. So again, three were set up on the eastern side, three on the western side in the actual promised land. Here we get the name now of the three cities that were designated on the eastern side of the Jordan in those territories. Now chapter uh, 4 verse 44 seems to now pick up the beginning of now this second message or second sermon of Moses which basically rehearses now for them initially the actual we'll see 10 commandments rehearsed for this next generation. It says verse 44, now this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt on this side of the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites who dwelt in Heshbon, who Moses and the children of Israel defeated after they came out of Egypt. We saw that battle take place. And they took possession of his land and then the land of Og, remember, king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from Arar, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, even to the Mount Sion, that is Hermon. 
and all the plain on the east side of the Jordan as far as the Sea of Arabah below the slopes of Pisgah. So all that to say, Moses said this on the eastern side of the Jordan. That's the simple translation. Again, he's rehearsing, giving the clear designation of where they were geographically at that time, right on the border before they crossed over. It begins now, chapter 5, verse 1. Then Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes, the judgments which I speak in your hearing today. Notice, reason why, that you may learn them. And be careful to observe them. Again, we take notice of the direct connection. We pointed this out before. He says, listen, that you may learn, and you may then live these things out. He doesn't say, listen to what I'm about to say, so that you can learn those things, and so that you can say, we are the most deeply theological intellectual people that have more knowledge of God among all these pagan people around us and we can quote scriptures and we can debate people. No, he says, listen that you may learn and why? That you can be careful to observe these things. Again, always this connection. Listen and learn the word of God so that you can follow the word of God, that you can live it. You know, let me say this. It is a dangerous, dangerous thing when a person... And a lot of times I think this happens not consciously. I've seen this you know, subconsciously. People don't even know where they're doing. When a person measures their spirituality by how much they know. And this is a common flaw, I think, for Christians. Where a person knows all kinds of things spiritually. I mean, they can quote Bible verses. They can give the greatest spiritual counsel. They can reference passages and texts. And they are so theologically sound. But yet their life's a mess. And they don't live it out. And in the personal life or in their private life, they don't obey what the Word of God says. Oh, they can quote it. They're one of the fantastic evangelists or the you know, maybe the greatest debaters, and, and they can just, I mean, the God speak and what they know spiritually is immense compared to many of us. But yet there's no real fruit of the Spirit in their life. There's compromise and there's concessions and they're measuring their spirituality because of how much they know. And the reality is, is God says, no, no, no. It's not how high you can jump. It's how straight do you walk when you hit the ground. The Bible says knowledge puffs up, love builds up. The fruit of the Spirit being manifest in life is love, which walks in obedience to God, which loves the Lord and loves people and serves people. And we have to be careful. Don't ever measure your spirituality by how much you know spiritually. Measure your spirituality by how much are you actually walking in the Spirit. How much are you obeying the Spirit and observing what the Word of God says? I'll tell you this, for, from a personal devotional perspective, you know, when I was teaching my children and, and you know, still in a process of helping them learn how to have their devotions, one of the things I tried to help them to hone in on is, look, read a passage of Scripture, read five, ten verses, but as you read five, ten verses, whatever, find one verse that as you read over that passage, maybe one, two, three times, that really just that one verse kind of resonates with you more than the other one. And then take a few minutes and, and write some thoughts about journal. You know, what, what is God saying to you through those verses? I, I don't care if you can't you know, tell me the theological context and the historical background and you know, what is the you know, you know, uh, ability. No. What's God saying to you? 
through that and, and try and live that. Try and follow that you know, truth or obey that principle. And you know, to me, that's, that, that's beautiful. I remember when my kids for a number of years were at a, a Christian uh, school in York that we had them in before we came here. And they would have them memorize these massive, these massive, it was like the Gettysburg Address, portions of scripture. Maybe in like second grade. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, I, I would get in the flesh trying to help them memorize their Bible verses. Seriously. I was like, honey, you got to cast a demon out of me. I'm like ready to kill somebody, you know. Just you know, you up till 10.30 at night with a second grader trying to memorize, you know, the first three chapters of Galatians for a test in the morning. It's like, are you kidding me? And on one occasion, somebody was dumb enough in the school to ask me my opinion about it. And I just said, look, here's my thought and again listen I, I never you know, God established the authority in the school we will honor and respect whatever you ask us to do I'm not one to challenge authority but, but I said if you're asking me what I think I said the Bible says I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you I said it doesn't say I've hidden your word in my head I think what's happening is these kids can wrote routine and again listen I'm not knocking scripture memorization. Please don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. God's word is in there. It's a good thing. But my kids could rattle off. I mean, they probably could still to this day. The whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 verbatim or something like that. But, but my thought was, look, if God's word's all just hidden in their head and they don't understand half of what they even memorized or why they learned it or what it means, other than having a bunch of information, is it really... I said, I, I would rather you teach them one verse and they really understand what that verse means and, and, and they really try and have it in their heart and let it live out in their life and keep them from making and, and live it out from here. I'd rather them be obeying one verse than be able to quote to me 20 verses. And I think as Christians sometimes, and again, as a people who love the Bible in a movement of churches that we are, we are a Bible-loving fellowship of churches, Calvary Church, and I think that's good. I think it's a gifting God has certainly given to us among our ministry that we are very strong in the Word of God. But let us be careful that we don't just become deeply theological Bible students rather than Bible lovers and Bible livers. And, and, and Moses says here, learn these things so that you can be careful to observe these things. And then he's going to go on and reiterate these Ten Commandments, as we know them from Exodus 20, verse 2. He says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, or again, a reference to Mount Sinai, as we've talked about. And he says, The Lord our God did not make this covenant with our fathers. The idea there is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was the Abrahamic covenant. But with us, he said, this covenant was made. He's talking about now the Mosaic covenant that was made with the generation prior to those standing there with Moses that day that had died off because of the sin of failing to believe when the spies went in. So he says that this covenant, it wasn't given to our patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This covenant was given to those of us who are here today our fathers, grandfathers, and, and all of us who are currently alive. Again, Moses is trying to emphasize this is our responsibility. This is our calling. This is what God has given to us in the Mosaic Covenant. The Lord talked with you, he says, verse 4, 
with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire. Remember, it was that awesome experience there. Exodus 20 is God was speaking out of the midst of the glory cloud. For you were afraid, he says, because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain. And he said, again, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. So God begins, notice, by prefacing, again, here's God's top 10 list once again. God's 10 commandments, you know, the Jews would say there are 613 commandments, you know, some positive, some negative. Well, in, in one sense, true, but, but in essence, they are all just an expansion of this is God's top 10. So again, God's, these are my top 10. There's not five, there's not 20, there's 10. And really the summation of these 10 is really the heart of, that's laid out in the rest of many of the other laws and principles that are given to govern them socially and spiritually and the sacrificial system and all those other kinds of things. Ultimately, remember, Jesus would say, when they asked him, what's the greatest commandment of all those commandments? He's, Jesus said, I even simplified it more. He said, well, let me summarize it for you. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. That's the summation really of the Ten Commandments even because the first four deal with the vertical relationship between man and God and the remaining six deal the second half with relationships of respect on the horizontal level as people interact and relate with one another. So loving God and loving people. So the first commandment, again, we saw these back in Exodus 20, but he's now restating these for the younger generation to receive them now he's reminding them of them verse 7 the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me so commandment number one notice basically god was to be worshipped exclusively god did not want to share their worship or their devotion or really their supreme attention with anything or anyone else Again, why? He says, verse 6, I think this is the basis. God says, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who brought you out of bondage. Paul would say in the New Testament, ultimately, you were bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You're a, you were a slave. And you were bought off the slave block through Jesus Christ. Well, God said to Israel, to the Jews, I'm the one who brought you out of bondage. I'm the one that drew you out of slavery, revealed myself to you, rescued you out of that situation. So the idea is that deliverance of their lives should be what prompted them to their obedience to these Ten Commandments. It was out of gratitude. It was out of response to what God had done, that first commandment that you shall therefore have no other gods before me. Now, when you see no other gods before me, we see the word before and we think they're the idea of, of that means in order. No other gods before me as if somehow in our English vernacular that would equate to us. Oh, okay. Well, so basically what God was saying to the Jews is, look, you could have other gods, but just make sure none of them rank before me. In other words, you can have this God. They can be number three. They can be number two. As long as I stay number one in your life, you can give a little bit of worship, a little bit of devotion, a little bit of attention to some of these other things on the side. Well, no, the idea there when God says no other gods before me, the idea is before me, it should be in essence in my presence. 
In the same way tonight, I'm standing before you. I'm in your presence. And that's what God was saying. You shall have no other gods at all in my presence. I don't want to see any other God in your life before me. In my presence, there's to be no other God. Nothing else in your life that has the supreme place of worship and devotion and allegiance. And and again, it makes total sense. Who in the world or what in the world would deserve what God deserves of our worship, our absolute allegiance, our first priority and and our complete devotion and worship of everything to him, nothing else. So God says, you shall have no other things that you worship in my presence. The first commandment, again, God's to be worshiped exclusively. The second commandment, he goes on, verse eight, you shall not make for yourself any carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in earth beneath that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the first commandment, God is to be worshipped exclusively. In essence, you could say the second commandment here given in verses 8 through 10 is that God is to be worshipped correctly or God's to be worshipped appropriately. God says here, and we saw this in great depth last time, I don't want to over-exhaust this repetition of what spoke a lot about in chapter 4, how God told them, you're not unlike the people of the land of Canaan, to make graven images, relics, things that you use, objects and things that you, in a sense, say are a representation of me. This is what the people of the land did. They had this little image that represented this God and this little relic that represented that God. And they had certain places and things that were representations of the deities and things that they worshipped. And God said, look, I don't want you to make for yourself any carved image of anything because, as we said last time, last week, nothing would be an adequate representation of God. And again, here's the first reason why. What did we say earlier? God is what? Creator. So if God's creator, if you create something to be a representation of God, you've already flawed it because you've created something to represent a creator. doesn't work. God's omnipresent. God's everywhere. As soon as you make something and it has a locality, it doesn't represent omnipresence anymore because it's now limited to one location. There's nothing that's an adequate representation of God. And the Bible tells us, Jesus said, God is spirit. There is no way to make a physical manifestation, a physical representation that accurately depicts who God is. It always would diminish who he really is. That's why God doesn't want us to have to you know, be making relics and things. God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth because he is a spirit. So he cautions them to worship him correctly, appropriately, on his terms. He says, I don't want you to mingle your worship system by adopting the ideas of the people around you. That's how they worship. But God says, I'm to be worshipped exclusively, but I also must be worshipped correctly. You don't come to me on your terms, God's trying to say. And this is a temptation. Well, we'll take a little bit of what the people of the land do, and and we kind of want to create our own way to approach God. And God says, no, you approach me on my terms. 
And that's make no graven image. You worship me the way that I ask to be worshipped. And again, for all of us, you know, that, that's such an important thing. We need to worship God not on our terms. We don't have the prerogative to determine how we're going to worship God. We're going to reduce God to our terms. We're going to dictate the terms and the contract to God. And God, it's going to be this way because it's going to be what's convenient for me and fits my lifestyle and my way on my terms. And a lot of people want to relate to God like that. Well, people can do that, but I tell you, that's not relating to God. And you're never going to have a relationship with God that way. God's the authority. We must come to God worshiping him his way on his terms. And that keeps us in a right relationship. So he says, you shall not bow down to these things nor serve them. Worship me correctly. Again, for I'm a jealous God. And it makes this difficult statement. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, the idea here in essence is God indicating how rebellion and notice those who hate me. How rebellion and hatred for God, unfortunately, is something that gains momentum. And it has consequences to it. When you have a parent or grandparents who, who hate God and rebel against God and live a lifestyle that's rebellious against God and hateful towards God, unfortunately, that kind of pattern and that kind of thing in a, in a lifestyle tends to get momentum and then sometimes gets transitioned to the next generation. Where like a cycle and a pattern, the next generation grows up and they hate God and they rebel against God. And as a result, this very unhealthy sort of cycle that can begin to happen. And we've certainly all seen this kind of a thing where, you know, people adopt the patterns and the cycles of their parents and their grandparents. And sometimes the same problematic things, habitual sins or, you know, animosity and hatred towards God will translate from one generation to the next generation. But the wonderful thing is, look, in the same way, love for God and obedience to God can have a very powerful influence that can also inspire people to love God in the next generation and to break the chain and God's incredibly merciful in those situations notice he says in contrast showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments so again loving God and, and obeying God can influence in a very powerful way to a greater extent so far reaching of a cycle being broken and people loving and obeying God instead. He goes on verse 11 then to give to us the third commandment here. You shall not take the Lord your God in vain. Uh, the, Lord your God, the name, excuse me, of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So uh, the, the third commandment here basically is how God was to be honored and God was to be reverenced in worship uh, in regards to the way that one lived and the way that one spoke, when he says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the Hebrew term literally means to make empty or to deplete of value or meaning. So again, it, this was an instruction. They were not to be, the idea, they weren't to be trivial with God. Uh, they weren't to just use God's name in a way where they were speaking like they were speaking about someone else. God was to hold a place of incredible reverence of incredible respect, and they weren't to, to make shallow or empty the name or the representation of who God was. They were to be sincere. They weren't to reduce God down to something that was meaningless and very casual. There was to be a reverence. So don't take the Lord's name in vain. 
I don't know about you, but I mean, isn't it? I mean, oftentimes we read this and we think of you know somebody using God's name in, in vain in a sense when they get angry or something like that, or you know, even you know, people even text. They text like OMG. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand, but there's a part of that, but it's like, come on. I mean, is it, it, certainly not in today's generation, it's deteriorated, but even when I was a kid, I mean, there were certain people that you just showed respect for. You talked to a police officer, you said, sir. You talk to somebody who's older than you, say, sir. You know, my kids to this day, so I, I do that, because what are you calling people sir for? That? I don't know, it just happens. I mean, it's just called respect. It's just something you do. Look, well, if we do that towards people, we're talking about the living God. We're talking about God. And so again, whether we're speaking to God or speaking about God, there should always be a, a reverence. There should be a level of awe and wonder about who he is. And so again, the idea here is God was to be honored and reverenced in the way that one spoke and worshiped God and lived for God. The fourth commandment, verse 12, he says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant, notice, may rest as well as you. So again, it's interesting how God has to be so exhaustive in his list because he, <laughs> he knows humanity. So God is like, it's like, could you, could you just say one thing about God? Says, I know you'll try and slip something in there. You know, God knows our propensity to try and skirt, you know, and cut corners and find some, you know, avenue or angle on something. So God says, look, all the way down to the animals, the oxes, look, let, let them all rest, he says. The reason, verse 15, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the fourth and final commandment of the first table of the law, which dealt with God's relationship with man on the, uh, you know, a, a, horror, a, excuse me, a vertical level between man and God. They were to worship God exclusively and correctly and, and honor and reverence God in their worship. And then the fourth commandment was the Sabbath commandment given to the Jews in regards to them really demonstrating reliance upon the Lord by trusting in his ways rather than their ways. God set this pattern in line for them where six days they were to work, but then on the Sabbath they were to rest. Now, keep in mind, very interesting, this is a covenant that God made, a perpetual covenant, it says, with the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 31 clearly states that this was a covenant God made with a specific group of people, the nation of Israel. Now, we've talked a lot about the Sabbath before, but one thing I would remind you of is, is very simply this, is of, of the Ten Commandments many of which are reiterated in the New Testament. In other words, it's still wrong to steal today. The New Testament tells us not to steal. It's still wrong to commit adultery today. The New Testament tells us that. It's still wrong to have idols today. First John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. The only command from the top 10 that doesn't make it into the New Testament for the covenant of grace for you and I, who are Christians, one in Christ, is the Sabbath. Nowhere is the Sabbath enforced 
upon the New Testament church. It was a pattern and a covenant that God gave to the nation of Israel. Exodus 31 says it was specifically for them as a chosen nation of people. Now, again, listen, is the pattern wise? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's a wonderful thing. You know, be very productive, work hard, work six days a week and take one day a week and out of honor and reverence for God, rest and replenish and be refreshed and, and give just time to focus on God and detach from everything else and give your full attention to God and recuperating and, you know, to family and just detach from everything else. Interesting, when God gave this initially in Exodus 20, it was given so that they might emulate the pattern of God who created in six days and rested on the seventh. As God gives the the command now of the Sabbath repeated here in the Ten Commandments to this generation in verse 15 he points now that this was also reflective of how they were once a slave in the land of Egypt but then God brought them out of that and God delivered them from that bondage and that hard cruel labor that they were under working so hard day after day under the whip of Pharaoh like cruelty and bondage in their slavery and God uses that as the basis for honoring the Sabbath here. Uh, again, this is something that we know from a, a Christian perspective in the New Testament that ultimately the reason why the Sabbath is not repeated in the New Testament is because it's a picture, the Sabbath, of ultimately a rest that we would experience spiritually. Because Jesus is our Sabbath. See, they had a Sabbath day. As a Christian, you have a Sabbath life. You rest in Christ from all your labors. You don't have to labor to try and keep yourself right with God. You don't have to labor and work like God's some taskmaster and if you don't meet his quota, he's going to bring the whip down on you. And if you don't fulfill your quota of bricks and good works that somehow you're out of right relationship with God and he's going to be pretty harsh and pretty cruel with you now. No, our trust is in the finished work of Jesus Christ and he is our rest. That's what Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Rest for your soul. And that's why it's not reiterated for you and I. Paul says in Colossians 2, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance, the idea is the reality, is in Christ. Again, Paul indicates how this is not something enforced upon us that we must observe. Again, in the New Testament, traditionally, and we see scripturally, they typically met on Sunday, which was the first day of the week, the day that Christ rose from the dead. Again, there are people who want to get all hung up. Oh, we got to keep this Sabbath. Look, the Bible says, let each be persuaded in his own mind. If, if you know, To what extent you want to still observe the principle, God bless you. But we're not mandated to do it. And the reality is we always have to remember from a Christian perspective as we look at the Ten Commandments and the law, the Bible in the New Testament makes it very clear that the law, the Old Testament, was never something intended to make man righteous. It was given to the nation of Israel as a moral code, yes, as a way to live their lives and to govern their lives in right relationship with God and with their fellow man. But it also was to do two things, to reveal to them the standard of God's holiness and at the same time to reveal to them the reality of their own sinfulness. Because as they read these things and observed these things, they realized, ah, we all keep failing here somewhere. We all keep messing. That's why they had the sacrificial system. 
So again, as we look at the Old Testament, the Bible says the law, it's all good, good principles. The, the truths of these things are repeated to us, but the wonderful thing is we're not under the law's condemnation. We're not under the sentence of the law because Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. It doesn't mean that we cast it aside as no good. Paul said the law is good. The problem is I'm bad because I don't keep the law. And it reveals to me those weaknesses, again, whether it's my relationship with God or whether it's the relationship on the horizontal of honoring father and mother or not murdering. And Jesus even said you can murder in your heart or not committing adultery. And Jesus said, well, well I never, but if you lust after someone in your heart, you still violated it. You know, and what a wonderful thing for you and I to look at these things, to realize as we look at this list that you know, as, as God laid these things out, what a really wonderful, wise way to live life. I mean, it's, let me just say this in clue. We live in a culture today that is losing its mind. And we, something like this. Well, let's see. Reverence your creator. Relate reverently so that you can have a right relationship with your creator. Work really hard, but take one day a week so that you don't overwork and become a workaholic and just unplug and appreciate the more important things in life like God and family and letting yourself recuperate and just get refreshed and recharged. And be respectful to authority. Raise kids that aren't going to be rebels that rebel against their parents disrespectfully and therefore become rebels and rebel against society and then rebel against the ultimate authority of God. Don't commit adultery. Respect the marriage relationship. Don't steal from people. Work hard. Provide from yourself. Don't take things that don't belong to you. God lays out these things. Don't lie. I mean... Don't, don't covet what's not yours. Be content with what you have. And, and we look at that in our generation today and we go, this stuff's horrible. Tear down those monuments. How dare we think that would be establishing the principles of how we should exercise our court systems or govern our nation. Tear these things down. These are horrible. Insanity. As if somehow we're smarter than God. God help us. God help us. Let's, let's stand again. We're going to have to close there.